G'day and welcome to the Drive Able podcast. I'm Brad Williams and over there is Ali Akbarium. Uh, and today we're talking about driving modifications with Eric Russell, MBE. Eric is an Australian Paralympic athlete, coach and administrator, and a big interest in cars. So we're super excited to talk to him. But if you haven't heard about Eric, let's just list off a few of his achievements. In 1976 at the Toronto Games, he won gold for the men's discus, men's pentathlon, men's shot put, and got a silver in the men's javelin. And then in the 1980 Games, he got a gold in the men's shot put, men's pentathlon, and the men's discus. So uh, he's a bit of an overachiever in the athletics world, uh, but we're super excited to uh, interview him because Tim Maloney, if you haven't caught up with that interview that we uh, recently did, go and have a uh, listen to that one. Um, but he said that we had to talk to Eric because of his interest in cars. So, Ali, I'm super excited to get this chat underway with Eric. What about you? Yeah, super excited. Let's speak to him. Welcome to the Drive Able podcast, where each episode you get to listen to two of Australia's leading professionals in the area of driving and community mobility for people with disabilities. In each episode, they interview drivers, carers, and industry experts and share the insider's guide to driving with a disability. Here are your hosts, Brad and Ollie. Hi everyone, I am really excited to get into today's interview, but before we get started, we just want to do a quick shout out to our sponsors who make this show possible, Mobility Engineering and Williams OT. This show takes time and money to put together and we are forever grateful to their passion for our industry. Okay, enough of the business, let's get into the interview. Today we have Eric Russell joining us today. G'day Eric, thank you for joining us. Let's kick off first by introducing yourself with a little bit about your disability, um, what it actually is, how you came about it, et cetera. Uh, and yeah, over to you, Eric. Mm. Yeah, thanks, Ali. Uh, thanks, Brad. Um, yeah, I had uh, a motor vehicle accident in Port Moresby in 1971, and that left me with a, well, what when in, in those days was called a T10 incomplete spinal cord injury. And um I had uh, a lot of trouble with uh, fluid retention in the legs. And uh, as a result of that, I ended up having um, bilateral uh, mid lower leg amputations. Um, And um, that was really positive and not a problem. Um, And uh, I've... um, I've not really had any other serious injury since then. I had a, a heart valve replacement many years ago, and that's all good. So, so that's the, the medical history side of things. So you had the accident in 1971 in Port Moresby. First, yes. I've, I've just got a question about that. What was the hospital system like in Port Moresby in 1971? Um, perhaps the tale about... Um, they never had a lot of um, equipment or anything there. And uh, the in the accident, I was driving an MGB GT and okay. uh, I got sideways in it and the very big, strong, heavy gear lever ran. I ran it all the way down my back and knocked a whole lot of bone chips and had bruising and stuff. Uh, and 
they were really worried about me in hospital. But um, luckily, there were two surgeons lecturing at the uni at the time that came and they would talk through the operation on the telephone from Royal North Shore, apparently. But the interesting part about it, and to answer your question really uh, with a bit of a joke, uh, we never had any catheters. So the little um, Papuan nurses used to stand on my bladder to get me to empty the bladder. Oh. <laughs> no yeah, standing right. on it. With oh, pumping it out for you. Oh, geez. <laughs> Yeah, right. Yeah. Eh? So it, it wasn't all that good, but I, I spent 18 days there and um, and then I was rehabbed in uh, in Brisbane. Yeah, right. Yeah, no, I, I mean, the, the hospital system in Australia in 1970s compared to what it is now is uh, chalk and cheese. I, I just I just can't mm -hmm. imagine what the uh, hospital uh, system was like in uh, Papua New Guinea uh, back in those days. Um yeah, yeah. yeah. Uh, Do you think that um, being in that system uh, maybe caused more risk to your injuries or made it worse? Um, no, I don't think so. Um, had those two surgeons not been up there lecturing at the time, then I think, yes, um, it, it could have been worse. Um, but I have an incomplete lesion. Uh, I had sensation to the knees. Uh, anteriorly, uh, but just from the belt line posteriorly. So I was a bit of a mixture. Yeah. So when when um they were talking to you about, I guess you know when when it was coming to the realization that you were going to be an amputee and things weren't going to go back. Um, what how was that like, and and what were you thinking about at that time? Do you remember? And um yeah, I guess and 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 how did you become? Were you a driver actually at that point? Uh, how old were you? Sorry. Um, yeah, I was uh, 26. Were you driving uh, the car? Yes. Yeah, okay. Yes. No worries. Yeah, yeah. yeah. And, and the, the 69 MGB GTs never had seatbelts. Yeah, 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 yeah. So that was the trouble. And, then, and uh, I rolled it and finished up uh, sitting on the unbroken passenger side window. Yeah, with wow. the car on its passenger side. So yeah, yeah, yeah. that's very tough. Um, but well, so you were you were driving, you know, a, a standard standard car in a standard way back in that time. What we first of all, what were you doing over there? I know that you got a bit of a, a history. Um, maybe not a standard way. Were you driving it a little bit erratically, Eric? I can see you laughing there. <laughs> yeah. Look, uh, the answer to that was that. Um, I'd always had relations in Papua New Guinea uh, since after the Second World War, they'd been up there. And my mum and dad were up there. And I was at a bit of a loose end here in Australia. And he got me signed up to a rugby league team up there. And they played very, very good rugby league up there. So uh, off I went to pay rugby league. But it was all my own fault. And I, I played a match. I went to a club afterwards. We went to a birthday party after that and had an argument with my girlfriend at the time, was angry, drunk, driving too, too fast. All my own fault. No one to blame. <laughs> yeah, righto. But, uh, but that didn't hold you back. So after, after the, the injuries and, and rehab in, in Brisbane, your life 
went in a different direction and it hasn't held you back. So do you want to explain where life went after the injury? Well, um, there used to be a group of people who met at the Spinal Injuries Unit who were involved in sport in those early days. And I got involved with them very early. And um, when I finally got to rehab, I ran into the guy that started uh, sport for athletes with a disability, mainly spinal cord people mm -hmm. in Queensland. He was in rehab and he introduced me to uh, throwing things. So, and as a very angry young man, I threw things very, very well. So I finished up, um, I, I got um, injured in May. I got out of hospital in July and I went to my first games in uh, February of the next year. Oh, wow. Yep. Okay. Uh, where, where did driving be, was driving part of any of that? Um, or were you like, did you just stop driving for a little while or did you get, get back into that as well? Um, no, I, I owned a, um, a Valiant um, two-door um, car before that, the one that was based uh, on the American Dodge Dart, okay. a long, uh, very nice car. And I owned one of them and it was a manual. And as soon as I got out of hospital, um, I figured out and rigged up hand controls on that vehicle. So I was driving a few weeks after being out of hospital. And, and yeah, and you um, did that yourself. You you yourself. rigged up your yeah. own system. Well, um, in a, in the previous lifetime, I was a boilermaker by trade, so I've got that engineering background ability, and uh, I just figured out how to do the brake and the clutch and the and the accelerator all on the one lever. Have you got photos of that from yeah, back in the day? I really want to see that one. <laughs> no, I, I don't. But just imagine now the common old um, push twist thing. Well, yep. what I did was instead of just putting a, a one-way joint in that, I put a universal joint in the lever. And then I put, uh, and put either side of that to a bracket uh, above the steering column and that had a cable that went down to the floor through the clutch so I was able to twist for throttle uh, push for brake and turn the handle around underneath the steering wheel <laughs> to the, the six o'clock position to operate the clutch that's awesome so you could do all of that on one hand did you have pulleys oh, in there? Did you have pulleys with the? With um, no, no. Um, I you you didn't need them. I um, okay. it's a bit difficult to explain. Yeah, but the two longish levers above the steering wheel are probably in the old money about six inches long, yeah. and they provided the effort to push the clutch in. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. Wow. Wow. So. so and that, that worked just fine, I, you know. I love the 70s in Australia in regards to the engineering that happened, you know, that 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 post-war era through to the 80s, uh, the engineering side of uh, Australia was, was amazing and came up with a whole lot of things. And we've spoken to a couple of people that have 
invented their own hand controls through that era and it uh, just blows my mind in regards to where we're in Australia right now where everything has to be engineered and and passed through it's a it's a different era and um it's actually interesting because um when we speak to people uh, I reflect anyone um there was nothing around so everyone had to just make their own things you know um and just mm-hmm. figure it out and it's actually really cool um that it just shows you anything is possible, you know, and how creative the the humans are, and, and they can make it work. So, yeah. um, and like you said, nowadays it can be a bit more. Sometimes um, uh, it can be a little bit limiting because you can only have one off the shelf product as such. Whereas this is just a customized product, you know, specifically made for your needs, which is really the ideal situation. So that's that's really good. It's amazing. It's amazing. So um, you you did your uh, um, your valiant. Well, and you know, not light in steering, not a light car. Uh, no, that no, would no. have been fairly hefty on the uh, on the steering arm, on the shoulder. Yeah. Is it? Was that your throwing um, arm? Was that um, your throwing arm? Was that the steering arm? Was the throwing arm? Yes. Yeah. yeah there you yeah. go. But um, yes, I'm I'm uh, left-handed, so I always set up with the steering wheel on the left hand and the and the levers on the right. Um, it it. Um, I got rid of it and I would probably still have it if it wasn't for the fact that my parents came down and I gave them the car for um, uh, for the time they were down here a couple of weeks. And my dad said to me when he went back, he said, oh, he said, something wrong with it. The clutch is just too hard. Well, it turned out the clutch and pressure, pressure plate stuff had uh, had its day. So... Um, I sold that car then, and uh, and the, and I bought then a, an FB Holden. Oh, yeah, an, another light car, a little bit lighter than the Valiant, maybe. <laughs> uh, very good. All right, so well, let's let's just go back a step. You went. You said that you uh, got out of hospital in about June or July, and then you competed in your first games the next year um give us a little bit of a history about your uh around sport and and where your life went to with uh sport well um i when i saw these people coming into the spinal injuries unit and then when i went to the rehab center and that bloke grabbed me well it just so happened then that uh in early january in 72 um there was what they called the trials for uh, the team to go, the Queensland team to go to Sydney. And he connected me up with that group and said, look, go out to the trials. So they hadn't figured on having anybody that threw stuff and we were in a grassed area outside the spinal injuries unit. And they gave me a shot put and said, well, have a go with this. And I'd never used one before. So, um, to that extent, I just sat in the chair and waved my arm and shot put him. And there was a guy there called Roy Fowler, who's an absolute legend in Queensland and, and Australia and uh, in the early days. And Roy said to me, they don't do it that way. They turned side on, grabbed the handle at the back of the chair and shot put out the back of the chair. So I tried that and then... Roy jumped up and got all excited and said, measure that, measure that. And when they did measure that one, they found out it would have been the Australian record. Oh, so 
Your first, your first throw in the right technique was an Australian record. Well, yes. Um, and But it wasn't allowable. It was just the trials outside the back of a hospital, you know. So that meant it was a bit difficult for him not to say, oh, well, we can't take this newbie guy to, to Sydney for the Games. But anyway, that started. And I was, from the first Games in, I was locked in on sport. This was... And then I started playing basketball. They introduced me to that. So I played basketball and did shot put discus javelin down in Sydney. And so what was it about the sport that kind of attracted you to it? Probably lucky that I was a, a fairly big brute of a guy and uh, and did very well first up. Um, okay. Those first games, I I got two bronze and a silver. So, for the three events, and they could see, particularly a guy from um, Sydney, uh, could see that I had some potential. So they selected me for the last of the wheelchair Commonwealth Games in New Zealand, um, in in seventy four. Um, mm -hmm. I apparently just missed selection for 72 Heidelberg, but I was too young for too early, you know. Yeah. 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 So, and, uh, and then uh, you went off to 76 and uh, things happened in the, the 76 games. Yeah. Um, I, by this time I was attending university um, studying human movement, mm -hmm. which was the new new breed of physique in those days. Yep. And so um, I got very, very good coaching and uh, a good training stuff there. So um, I went to the Paralympics and having had about two and a half years of really good training then, I did pretty well over there. The biggest controversy over there was the fact that I was working in the university with a Canadian and um, his mother lived in Toronto where the games were and she knew that there was a big issue about South Africa coming and the Canadian government. And uh, so I knew about all of that in the lead up to it. And uh, the thing that annoyed me was the fact that Jamaica, South Africa eventually came the government stopped the money and the people contributed three times what the government was going to give them anyway. Mm. So, but the problem was for me personally was that um, the Jamaicans sent their team and then told them when they arrived in Canada, they could stay, but not compete. So they are around the village in their bright yellow and black stripe um, sports gear and weren't able to compete. And the fact that a government had stooped so low as to use people with a disability to, to stress a political point. Mm. And we had South Africa there because they obeyed our constitution and they brought mixed race teams to games for 10 years. Mm. So I, I um, thought I'd do a personal protest and so I refused a, a the first gold medal I'd ever won. Right. And um, that set off a train of things in history that 
led me to being elected as chairman of uh, athletics internationally for for ten years. So, oh wow! Oh, well, I, I did. I didn't pick that up uh, in your in my little research of you. So, thanks very much for sharing. You're. Um, I did know that you were head of of the athletics um, for for quite a few times, but I didn't know how you got there. So um yeah no that's that's a very very interesting history but let's go let's go into that you're you're a you're an athlete and performing exceptionally well at the games and so forth at that point but um post post uh competing you like you said you're head of of the athletics so let's let's pick up the story from there well i sort of um a closing point on that was um, you can't compete if you're making the rules and running the system. So um, I retired from that and then went to the Games in 92 as my last Games as an athlete. And I'd always felt uh, that I'd been sort of robbed of the best competitive years, but I was still happy to to bring the system from uh, rehab through to professional sports era. Mm -hmm. Um, but um, home-wise, I started getting involved with uh, um, the sporting wheelies in Queensland, and I ended up, uh, I started there as the sports coordinator and then ended up as the um, uh, state administrator, we called it, executive director, CEO, that position. Um, and through all of that, uh, I met a, a beautiful lady from South Australia and decided to get married and move down to South Australia. Yeah, uh, right. Yeah. Well, this is a driving podcast. So let's talk about your cars <laughs> then. Um, where, where? so you, you had your Valiant to start off with and, and you, you got rid of that because of the clutch issue. But then that it didn't stop at that first car. You've... You're a bit of a car nut, is that right, Eric? Tim Maloney uh, said that we had to interview you because of yeah. your car history. So um, Tim Tim likes his cars as well. He's he's a basketballer. If you don't know who Tim yeah. is, and we interviewed oh, yeah. him a few podcasts ago, but yeah. um, he said that we had to interview you because of your interest in cars. So so let's yeah. talk about your your car history post accident. Yeah, I um. I eventually finished up with the FB Holden and um, it was the model, if you know it, that had the fins at the back and everything. And it was sort of very American long. Uh, and I looked at it and all I could see was convertible. Um, so I got under it one day with some two by two by 10 gauge uh, steel square tube and uh, welded a chassis underneath it. <laughs> and um, and then I slammed the back doors shut and welded them up. So it was and, a four-door? Uh, <laughs> sorry? It was a four-door? It was door. a four-door, yeah. Slammed the back doors shut and, um, and got the angle grinder out and cut the roof off and we went to town in it that night. I love that. I love that as a, uh, as a certifying engineer. I love that story. I've seen um seen a couple like that. Um how was the how was the um 
Uh, it's actually funny. I'll give you a quick story of one that I saw. <laughs> a guy brought it to me that they did something like that. And then as the, um, it was a Volkswagen Carmen gear, as the thing came into our driveway over the pump, all four doors popped open. Because <laughs> <laughs> the whole car was, uh, they, they, they didn't put the, fl- um, the uh, frame underneath, if that makes sense, you know. <laughs> so. Well, I, I tested mine because um, I took the seats out of it then and blocked up a whole um, sheet of steel and we dropped uh, a ton and a half weight in it, oh, and wow. it didn't didn't break. So I figured it was okay. Yeah. Was it? Are you still using um, the same hand control system, or did you make a new one up? No, no, that was an automatic. So I I only just had to have the twist grip and the push for the brake. And you uh, again made that one up yourself? Yes. Yeah. Okay. You you you, you didn't have to do anything in Queensland then. You if it worked, it worked. If it yeah, didn't. Yeah. Yeah. It was like everywhere, I think. And what about after that then? What 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 happened after that car? Any other interesting ones? Um, I drove that for oh, quite some years now, um, probably six years. And I run it round the clock going all over Queensland. And it eventually um, broke down. Um, I was working at Mara Coal Mine in central Queensland and it broke down one day and the motor was shot and the gearbox was whining and the diff was buggered and uh, it stopped. I got a lift into um, uh, into Biloela and I went to the uh, uh, Chrysler dealer there and I said to him, listen, um, this thing that you've always wanted is down there. If you can tow it in, you can have it and I'll have a new Chrysler, thank you. So, yeah. So you went to the Chrysler after that, and and yeah. did you do anything to that one, or did you put your own no, hand? No, no, that in was it? the one that I that that I ended up with hand controls on. The um, the Holden was pre-accident, right? Yeah, Holden Holden convertible. Yeah. So uh, the Chrysler, um, Chrysler. What sort of Chrysler was it? Um, that was the one based on the Dodge Dart. Oh, yes, yes, yes. Oh, yeah, gotcha. Yeah. Right. And then, so what about later on in, what about it later on in life? Is, is there other cars that you've um, done things to or or a, a car that you're really proud of later on in life? Um, probably uh, the um, LS Monaro oh, um, right. was um, a, a good one because um <laughs> That was uh, one of the small V8s, and um, I took that and uh, I found another Monaro with a 350 Chevy in it and a turbo 400 gearbox and a Ford 9-inch diff. Now, that was creme de la creme for Monaros, but the body was shot. My body was brilliant, so I'd swapped the whole drivetrains over and sold the other one off for next to nothing, but I got what I wanted out of it. And we reconditioned the 350 Chevy motor and put Edelbrock Crossflow heads on it and extractors and uh, put a nice new cam in it that got uh, done in Sydney uh, and um, put a bigger set of wheels on, a set of Statesman wheels, 
Um, so we went up to 16 inch from 15, and that made a hell of a lot of difference to the look of the car. Um, and so I had that for about 10 years as well. Yeah, loved that. Very, very big sounding car as well, the Chevy V8s were. I'm Made yourself a little rocket. A picture of that online. It's bloody a beautiful looking car. <laughs> yeah. Yes. Yeah. And it, I, we I used to go a, to the actually when I was a kid, so I love them. We used to go to the drags with it in the um, uh, in the Monaro Car Club, and um, the hand throttle couldn't give you full throttle like you need straight off the bat. So the guy who was president at the time used to put his fifth, uh, 13-inch slicks on it, 15-inch, I don't know what they were. Yeah, 13, I think. Put his slicks on it and take it out. So it got into the 12-second, uh, mid to low 12-second bracket at the drags. Yeah. And then you put the standard wheels on and drove it home. <laughs> wow. <laughs> Lovely. So uh, yeah. I asked something, I guess, with all of these... Um, Old old school technology that we're talking about in older cars. Now in um, twenty twenty two, um, what uh, are you using now, if anything? And how was the? Because I guess you know um, the reason why I'm asking is in these days, those sort of the old handmade stuff doesn't seem to be as easy to get through, and so you got to just buy products that are all complied and so on, and so. Have you made the transition to that and how was that and what are you using and how's that all been? Um, I actually uh, uh, bought, when I got rid of the Monaro, uh, I bought a Mercedes-Benz and that's an 86 um, SEC, so a two-door sedan. Um, uh, I had the SLC before that, but it, it was too low, the transfer up into it for my wife was a bit hard. So um, I bought that. I'd recently put that on Historic Reg and uh, bought a Ford station wagon and converted that into a camper van. Oh, wow. Oh, okay. Right. And what controls are in those cars? Um, I stuck with, and my wife stuck with, uh, the, the push twist. Okay. Forever. Oh, the, so the motor, the motorbike throttle type scenario. Yes. Yeah. And you, and you're still driving with that now. Yes. Yep. And is it the Ford that you're driving every day now, or what? What are you driving every day? Um, the Ford is the everyday driver. Yes, and right. uh, the um, the the Merc is under the under the cover. Comes out uh, for ninety days a year. Yeah. Right. Beautiful. So with the with the um, I'm interested just to quickly ask about the camper setup. How often do you get out and about camping? Um, not as often now uh, as I had done, but uh, I've done I think three or four trips to Queensland. I've done the the uh, Ayers Rock Northern Territory, West Australia, Nullarbor Plains. And you just um sort of sleep in the back there of the wagon? Yeah. Yes, I took out um, the uh, back seats and put a platform in there. And I, I've got water storage and storage for other stuff underneath that. And then we put a set of cupboards down both sides of the back from the back door to the tailgate. Yeah. And then we put a, a sink in with an electric pump and a 
fan and uh, a mattress and I sleep uh, across the where the back seat used to be on a, yeah, on the platform. Wow. So it's, um, that sounds like there's a lot of stuff in a Ford Falcon. That's right. But exactly. Where does it all fit? I can't, I can't, I can't picture it. We're going to have to get you to send through some photos, Eric. Yeah, that'd we'll, be pretty cool. Yeah, yeah. We'll put I really some uh, photos in the show notes. Because well, uh, I guess a couple of things that uh, I'm a certifying engineer and um, I, I inspect motorhomes all the time um, for compliance. So it'd be pretty cool to see. I haven't seen one in a Ford Falcon, I guess. Um, and, and, and me, myself, I've got a Subaru Outback, which my wife and I, um, we just get in the car and just go out into the desert and sleep in the back, you know, um, every three to six months anyway. So, and I love doing that. And, um, so yeah, that's, that's really awesome to, uh, to really hear. And, and I think, um, I got, I got one more question yeah. in regards to your, uh, from, this is an OT functional question. Um, in regards to your wheelchair, you said you're incomplete. How much function do you have of your lower limbs and what do you do with your transfers and what do you do with your wheelchair when you get in and out for the people that are listening and go, Oh, I won't be able to do that. Uh, Cause I can't, I can't get into the back of the car and so forth. Let's just talk about the transfers and how you get in and out and, and those type of things to give people a bit of an yep. idea of how you do it. Yep. Yep. Well, I, I set it up with a, an old Wymo roof hoist for the wheelchair. Yep. And I did that. Um, I don't have that on on, uh, on the Merc, but I do. Um, oh, hold on. So while he's getting that, the Wymo is a wheelchair lifter that lifts a folding frame wheelchair onto the roof, and and it sits flat on the on the roof bars. Yes. Yeah. And um, and then I transfer into the driver's seat, and I cut the console out and put a lower console in. Um, it's actually bigger in volume, as it turns out. It's a bit wider and whatnot. And then I transfer from the seat onto the console and then slide between the two front seats to get on the back platform. Okay, right. In, in yep. the back. So the back platform is level with the console and level with the back part of the car. I see. So that's, that's all flat. That's how you get through to that. I mean, we before we um, came on, we did speak about um, getting uh, Eric back for another chat from another angle, and I think maybe it can be done in front of that car, um, given the topic we were talking about as well, and you've worked on that car. I think a lot of people would like to see what's going on there. I would. <laughs> well, there's, yes. That um, console sounds I'm, pretty interesting as well. Yes, I'm back to the uh, using a slide board for transfers now. Um, being 78, I'm not yeah. quite as strong as I used to be. Those shoulders have been so through a bit. That that all um, that all works. But uh, a friend of mine gave me a hand to do this, and um, he's he's a, a guru with video and whatnot. So he made a video of that car, and he oh, put yeah. a soundtrack to it and everything. Um, so. That's the the one you couldn't quite access, and I'll send it to you. I can he, do that. Has he put it on YouTube? We'll be able to put a link up for YouTube. Yes. Yeah, it's beautiful. On YouTube. Yeah. Yeah. Awesome. We'll find that and we'll put it in the show notes. And I, I'm excited to look at it. I really am. Well, yeah. it's uh, it's titled is I've got a plan. I've got a plan. All right. Yeah. 
we'll go we'll go search we'll go searching for it and uh and put it in the show notes hey mate we've we've run out of time we we always get i don't know ali i think we have to make these podcasts an hour and a half long because we always run out of always run out of time there's always more that we could talk about but we'll leave all of our listeners hanging um before we uh ask our final question we're just going to do a a little shout out uh, to our sponsors one more time uh, mobility engineering and williams ot for for bringing you today's interview with eric eric we always ask our final question to to wind it up and that is to share a story about your driving a, a, a trip that you've done or a memory that you've got in a car because we know that cars are more than just getting from A to B. We've got that from you already. But is there is there another story or another something that you've done in your car that that no one else uh, knows about that you'd like to share with us today? Well, doing a bit of this work and doing a bit of travel, I always like to have a set of portable hand controls um, with me. So um, I take that overseas. I had them collapsible. Um, and a, a guy, Ali, you might know, called Doug Potts, uh, had a look at them. He does a lot of the work you're doing here in South Australia. But um, I had those. And when Julie's Toyota was uh, taken back because of the bag issue, I found her a Mercedes-Benz in uh, Melbourne. And so I flew over, took the portable hand controls with me, and horrified the salesman there putting them on and driving the car back to Adelaide with these portable hand controls on, which nowadays <laughs> are quite illegal. <laughs> That's right. Yeah, I was just about to say to everybody, don't get any bright ideas about portable hand controls. The Department of Transport in South Australia themselves, I'm not sure where it is up to in New South Wales, but uh, in South Australia, the portable hand controls are technically illegal. Uh, because they're not attached solidly underneath the dashboard or to the to the steering column. Um, so you don't, don't get any bright ideas uh, if you're listening to this about portable hand controls, because uh, they're technically not uh, allowed in Australia, as far as I'm aware. Yeah, always check with your local authority. Yeah, absolutely. Hey, um, Eric, we're gonna we're gonna wind it up. If people would like to get in contact with you and they want to find out about, I don't know, anything that you've spoken about today. I mean, it sounds like there's so many more stories that we've we've got to unpack with you, and we we might get you back to to unpack a few of those. Um, is there a way that they could reach out to you? Are you on Instagram or Facebook, or uh, have they got an email address that they could write to you if they really want to get in touch with you? Um. Yeah, I don't don't mind that. Um, The other alternative, Eric, is that they could reach out to us and uh, we could put them in contact with you rather than sharing it live now as well. So, Yeah, that's probably a better idea, yeah. Yeah, Yeah, no worries. So probably the the email is the easiest. Yeah, so so make sure that you you reach out to us if you want to know about uh, the Ford Falcon or or uh, any of the <laughs> converting an old car for for uh, taking the roof off. Uh, reach out to us; we'll put you in contact with Eric and and Eric. Um, I just want to say a massive thank you to you for coming on and uh, sharing your stories um, in regards to your sporting history and your cars as well. Um, it, it, you you haven't left 
let life stand in your way. You've got out there um, and enjoyed your life by the sound of it and made the most of it uh, post-injury. And uh, I really thank you for, for coming on. Thank you. Thanks very much for having me, guys. No worries. Um, everybody stick around because as we do in every episode, Ali and I are going to do our top three takeaways from what we've learned about this story and and just highlight the, the little bits and pieces that we've picked up along the way with our expert analysis. So stick around for that. And uh, Eric, thank you very much. See you next time. Thank you, Eric. All right, welcome back. That was a great interview. And in this section, we bring our expert analysis and top three takeaways from the interview that's for this episode. Um, this is where Brad and I provide our more than 30 years of joint experience in the industry, helping people with disabilities to drive and get out in the community to basically reflect on what we thought were the, the main kind of learnings from this lesson. So um, Brad, what do you think? How, what, what's lesson number one? Yeah, look, the... <laughs> I really want to thank Eric for coming on, but I also want to thank him for sharing his stories. And what we picked up was the ownership of his accident and his behaviours really early on. It sounded like to me that even, even in Port Moresby, in the hospital there and so forth, he took ownership of, of his accident, that he was, you know, he knows that he was having an argument with his with his girlfriend at the time and and was drunk and was driving too fast he mentioned all of that but it seemed like he took ownership of his accident really quickly and was able to accept the consequences of his behavior really quickly um and and we've spoken to to Eli Moon in the past and we've also spoken to Matt Caruana in the in the past as well Two two interviews that stand out to me. There's a couple others in there as well. Mitch, where they, Mitch, where they, Stone, Mitch Stone, Mitch, oh, Mitch, Mitch Stone, Stone as well. About yeah. the boat ride, pretty openly. A boat ride. Yeah. Where yeah. they've taken ownership of their behaviour and how it how it led to to where they've suffered an injury, mainly a spinal cord injury, um, but also the head injury for Eli as well. But able to take ownership of behaviour and the consequences of it. And once they've been able to do that, they've been able to move to the next stage of their life. And um, I just, I don't think it's something that a, a top takeaway or anything that you can learn from us. It's just something that stands out to both Ali and I in regards to how people are able to to move on and make them the best out of their life thereafter. So a, a quick little um, side thing, and I want to get people to go back to one of our early interviews with Matt Caruana. Mm. Um so from these interviews that we've done, which we've mentioned before, we both have personally learned a lot. Um, one thing I've learned um, is that it doesn't look like you can actually move on until you accept those consequences and accept that your actions. So Matt spoke about how he, as a young child, attempted suicide and it didn't work. Um, and then on the back end of that, he spent... Uh, I think over a year in pretty bad depression and, you know, not accepting his situation. And if you recall, he talks about a story of being on a train and this kind of rough around the edges Bogan guy kind of confronts him and is like, what the hell are you all sad about? And something, I can't remember exactly the story, but he talks about how he turned around and said, well, this is what I did. And the guy was like, well, oh, you're a freaking idiot, aren't you? You know, and, and, it, and it, that conversation um, helped him to start accept and he said that conversation was what changed his life and started moving him forward he accepted and then and now look where he is he's a national public speaker in fact I follow him on the socials and he's even starting to get a little bit of 
leg usage back with some insane, um, uh, you know, electronics. Yeah. And also um, just doing a lot of hard work, you know? So, so the point is, is he was a very, very clear example where he himself said he couldn't move on until he was able to make that acceptance um, of his, of his actions and then able to move to that next phase in life. So there's a couple of others as well that really stand out. Rob Lucan got beaten by a mosquito. Yeah. And just, and, and able to, able to just flick over to well that was bad luck and yep. then and then move on with the next next one as well uh alex chisholm able to accept as well and become the uber driver and and look at the next phase of his life there, yep. there's it's come out over and over and over again um with the interviews that we have we we're not saying that it's easy we're we're, we're not in the situation ourselves we're not putting our hand up to know what it feels like we're just reflecting on that the interviews that we've had, that this seems to be a repeated story from our perspective, that people are, the people that are, uh, are not getting on with life, that doesn't sound sound right, but I can't think of a better way of putting it out there, that it just seems to be a common thread that the, the early you're able to accept where you're up to and what's happened the the maybe the better outcomes that there are for you and it seems to be in particular the consequences of the actions that you've taken um you know like like we've you know every human has choices and sometimes we make choices which get us into a position where we're not happy with um and disability or not um that is a general kind of thing that it's good for everybody to have once you accept the consequences of your actions it just makes it easier for you to move on you know so yeah and, we and, don't want to get too deep into a life coaching lesson here so we're no not. we're not psychologists we're not <laughs> anything else like that um we're this is and, a common and theme we, seen, you know so. and we haven't lived through it so yeah. uh yeah please please uh, if you're struggling make sure you go uh, seek professional help uh in regards to assisting yourself to move move on and accept where you're up to uh just uh to put it out there uh matt's matt's interview was episode number 10 so yeah. um if you want to go back that far uh we're, we're beyond 60 now go back to episode number 10 um and yeah have a have a listen to that i mean trying to attempt uh, suicide and uh, and not working and then uh, moving on with life thereafter and 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 now as an inspirational speaker it's a, yeah. it's a great interview it's a great interview which i um, think then leads us to the next um, lesson uh, which was around sports and community so mm-hmm. um, so like we've seen here before um, in this podcast many times before um and i just want to give it a bit of context before we talk about it um something that brad and i were talking offline before we started this interview was one of the issues with this um with what disability community faces is um you know like oh well actually a perfect example is a a really good friend of my wife's which i was speaking to last week um really really high highly autistic child um and she was just like this child is never going to work you know he's 18 he's he's his condition is such that he's never going to have a job and so he needs to have um activities in his life now that he's finished school they're looking at activities to keep him busy so he can live life but he's not living the standard life everybody else is he's working he, he can't work right so one thing i guess which seems to keep coming up more and more uh, or just repeatedly is getting into sports as a disabled person is almost like 
it's almost like the kind of like the elixir of the gods as to what you need. You know, um, it's like a, it's like everything in one. It's like a whole package. You know, um, whilst it, it, it's kind of like if I can get into a sports community and get into sports, I'm ticking off probably about fifty to seventy percent of my human needs. Um, and I'm going to feel pretty satisfied. I'm going to have a community. I'm going to have friends. I'm going to have something that I'm working towards, goals. You know, uh, like like um, someone mentioned before, Mitch, I think it was, got a girlfriend, all these kind of things. So, so you know, it just allows you to have access to, you know, X, let's say a, a human being's community and, and needs is like from one to ten. This probably ticks off seven of those ten items, you know, in an instant way. So I highly recommend getting involved in that. Seeing that people have got girlfriends, seeing people getting in and out of their car, seeing people competing and enjoying and laughing and giggling and all that kind of stuff associated with the sport. But it doesn't have to be sport either. I mean, we um, we spoke about it in our reflection piece uh, in the previous episode after sixty episodes. Natalie Wade as well. She she created a community, or she was involved in just a dis- disability community where they where they are able to share stories, reflect on it, and and be able to help and motivate each other. Getting involved in a community, whether it's sport or not, you might not be a sporty person, or maybe that you can't play sport because of your because of the disability. But being involved in a community with like-minded people, it just seems to be a, a, a way that it links you in with other people in certain um, scenarios. And then it's not what you know, it's who you know. And that's the same for everybody, isn't it, in regards to getting jobs, in regards to the next phase of your life, enjoying life. It's it's who you, who you associate with to help you move on to that next next phase of life. Yeah, before we get to the last one, I will just quickly reflect on Nick Tiago as well um, and just say it doesn't have to be always the standard way. So he found a way that he could integrate with his community um, by going, like uh, we mentioned in the reflection, going and picking them up from nightclubs and bringing them back to his house, you know. And and whilst it meant he didn't go to the nightclub, it doesn't matter. He found a way that he can be involved, um, you know, with what he's got, you know, and, and yeah. he was very satisfied. So don't think, oh, well, I can't play this sport or I can't do this or I can't do that. Get involved in the community. There's always a place for someone. You know? Yeah. I hope, I hope that he listens to this, Nick. Um, know you're having a bit of a hard time at the moment. So hopefully you're listening to this and um, yeah, mate, we're, we're there for you if you need. Hey, um, the last, the last point, uh, our third takeaway, and this is a driving podcast. So should we should talk about a yeah, driving, yeah. a driving takeaway um, and regards to, I mean, this, this is your, this is your cup of tea, Ali. This is the yeah. engineering side of it all. Yeah. How interesting from the 70s to now, how the innovation has has changed through that time. It's so different from the 70s to it is now. And yeah. and we just wanted to reflect on what's maybe happened over that time in our in our last takeaway for this session. Jeez, it's changed a lot. Yeah, well, one of the things which I thought was really cool, um, and in a way, as a, as a sort of, um, I guess, a nerdy engineer, it makes me a little bit sad that um, I think the personal innovation that people have is losing because there's more options on the table, like we've discussed. It's a great thing that there's millions of different hand controls or whatever, you know, hundreds of hand controls out there. But the fact is, um, these cool innovations like this, you know, three-way hand control that can run manual cars and all this kind of stuff, 
doesn't exist anymore because you don't have the collective creative creativity of the individual random over here or that person over there that was forced to do something, you know? Um, and, and I think I wanted to cover that a little angle there that innovation always comes when, when you're forced to innovate um, and having a lot of products and NDIS is great, but it also can make us a little bit lazy um, and can make us a little bit like, oh, well, we give up. There's nothing off the shelf for this person. And it goes back to a point which I've always mentioned and we've mentioned here in this podcast. If it's not working for you, don't accept it. Kick, scream, shout, tell them to F off or P off or whatever. It's not working for me. I need something better. And as you as you heard with um, Eric, you can make anything. You know, you can get a boiler maker. You, you it may not have, be a perfect, you know, like I said, like we've interviewed, you know, high-end satellite controls, all of that stuff. They're great. But if that's not working, we can make something. Something can be innovated um, and we need to push back and say, hey, this is not good enough. This is the NDIS. It's it's what's made for you. Um, and you can make stuff, you know. And, and I love hearing those stories of those cool innovations, you know. Um, out of those yeah. Days. Look, that it has to meet engineering standards nowadays. That's exactly. that's that's something that has changed. Like he he created his own hand controls. There was no tick off. There was no nothing. Um, probably the police officer in the seventies went, "Oh, that's pretty cool, mate," and off you go. Um, it's a bit different nowadays. Look, we do have to meet engineering standards, and and Ali, you're you're one of those certifying engineers to be able to to do that. There are certain criteria that has to be met from a safety point of view because you don't want that hand control skewering you to the um to the seat if you're ever involved in an accident or anything else like that so and that's why those portable hand controls have been seen to be to be an issue um yeah definitely the- you need to make sure everything is always compliant and work with the engineers but the point is is even if there's something that's not off the shelf something can be yes. certified and complied like an engineer like myself that like, for example, to give you an idea, um, when the part comes in from overseas, um, an Australian engineer has to review and sometimes even test those parts as per the Australian standards. So it makes no difference if someone was to make something up. It just might mean that it's a bit more expensive because they have to make maybe two of them to have one tested by an engineer and pay for that testing. Now, you know, it's if that if that is what has to happen then that's what has to happen you know it is sometimes it is what it is a bit more expensive but we've already spoken to people doing hundred and eighty thousand dollar conversions on their cars with robotic hand controls and you know high-end hand controls so you know it's not going to cost you that much money let's put it that way so if you've got partial function of one limb it's worth exploring driving yeah you might be thinking that oh no that doesn't relate to me but there's if we've got partial function of one limb and and look we've got wheelchairs being driven by chins and mouth all that kind of stuff i'm sure that that kind of innovation's not too far away for cars i'm sure about it but with um driverless cars now as well i mean there's the options are going to change for people as moving forward. There's going to be a whole wave of people that are able to drive and be independent that weren't able to be in independent before. But there's a lot of innovation between now and then as well that can happen. So there's a lot of products out there. There's a lot of products to explore um, to help. And these can be tweaked or modified or repositioned or or um, innovated to be able to to help, so make sure you get out there and 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 explore what's available, and uh, and let's get creative and and see what we can do to to get you driving. So, uh, yeah, that was our third takeaway, um, and that that 
basically winds it up, doesn't it, Ali? Yep, it does. So we just want to we just want to do a shout out to our uh, sponsors that make this show possible. If you're looking to uh, jump on the sponsorship uh, bandwagon uh, for the Drive Able podcast and help us take this podcast to the next level bring on more uh, interviewees, um, make sure that you reach out to us. But uh, currently our sponsors are Mobility Engineering and Williams OT. And uh, we just want to do a shout out to them. Williams OT, driver assessments and rehab is all the pieces of the puzzle to assist people with disabilities to reach their driving and community mobility needs. And Mobility Engineering is a team of passionate and dedicated people focused on bringing Australia's largest range of suitable transport solutions for all walks of life. It was a great interview with Eric, but as we say in every episode, the advice provided in this podcast is general in nature. So if you've got any queries about what can work for you, make sure you get in contact with your local OT or mobility dealer and set yourself up with a trial because trials really do put you in the driver's seat. That's it for this episode and we can't wait for the next one. Ali, thanks very much. Thanks, Brad. We'll see you next time. Thanks for listening to the Drive Able Podcast with Brad Williams and Ali Akbarian. If you like what you've heard, make sure you like, rate, and subscribe. It really does make a massive difference. If you or anyone you know would like to share a story about driving with a disability, or you would like to get in contact, find the show notes, or find the resources mentioned in this episode, you can find us on Facebook. Just search at Drive Able Podcast for more information.